Hello, and thank you for listening to Light the Right Films In, a podcast about expressing through the holding of hands those feelings which words cannot express, which is difficult through an audio medium, but we're doing our best. I am your host, Tyler Hannon, and joining me, as always, my co-host, Kayla Sainach. Hello. I am also here to remind you that holding hands is currently illegal, so you cannot express uh, those feelings which words cannot express in that way right now either. <sighs> I mean... You know, you say it's illegal, but like, if it's the only way to express how you're ultimately feeling. Well, that's not how we flatten the curve. So <laughs> handholding illegal. Currently, you will have to express what you're trying to express through longing stares only. I'll try. So Kayla, <laughs> as you pause. may have guessed, uh, the movies we're covering today, <laughs> as previously advertised, are 1947's Black Narcissus and 2000's In the Mood for Love. Yes, this is our second Criterion double feature following last month's. This is our second Criterion double feature following last month's The Eyes of Laura, or, sorry, Eyes of Laura Mars, No The, and The Hunger. And uh, we last week, re we released our May Recently Watched episode on which we talked Swallow, Sinister, Blow the Man Down, and Martyrs. Got them all. But this week, we're leaving our horror roots behind in part. I think it's going to come up a little bit. But we're talking about, I mean, we can talk about uh, longing, love, passion, or maybe you could just say two movies that are really horny in which people really want to fuck, but try really hard not to because of principle. They're very classy, horny movies. I will say that. Now, Kayla, we are going to start with 1947's Black Narcissus. This is the story of a high endeavor that tried and tested a woman in the remote background of Asia. The story of a prince and a beggar maid and of a nun who gave up her vows. Why should we want to keep you here against your will? Because you're all jealous of me. Especially you. The clash of strong personalities. I understood you wanted to see me. We want to talk to you on business. I suppose you want to talk to me on anything else. Sorry. I don't know why you are being so rude to me, Mr. Dean. I have to talk business with you whether I like it or not. The contrast of present peace and self-denial with the rich memories of the full years that have passed. They renounced the world of men, but found that the world was not to be denied. I gave up my vows. I finished with them up there. I see. Black Narcissus is a 1947 British film. It was directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. They are a multi-Oscar winning filmmaking team. They made uh, 24 movies together, often with writing, directing, and producing credits. The movie was based on a 1939 book written by Margaret Rumor Godden. Uh, it stars Deborah Kerr, Sabu, David Farrar, Kathleen Byron, and Gene Simmons. It would go on to win an Academy Award for Best Cinematography, with the cinematography being done by Jack Cardiff, and for Best Art Direction for Alfred, I'm going to assume this is the German pronunciation, Junge. It also won a Golden Globe Award for Best Cinematography, and uh, just not really a technical achievement, but one of the most known things about it, if you look it up at all, is that Martin Scorsese loves this movie a lot. <laughs> so in Black Narcissus, a mission of Anglican nuns is dispatched to set up a school and a hospital in India at the behest of a local ruler known as the Old General. 
The location is a former harem on a windy clifftop perch surrounded by lush flora and vegetation. There to uh, supposedly aid them is a handsome acerbic Englishman, Mr. Dean, and his short, short shorts, and his often open shirts. I have a lot to say great, about that. Great body. <laughs> great, it is, and sweaty all the time. Uh, As you would be in India. Uh, also there uh, are a rascable old caretaker named Angu Oya, and the old general's welcoming, enthusiastic heir, the young general. The nuns also take in a young woman, Kanshi, who's caused some trouble, not so lightly implied, with her incredible horniness. Uh, the good, godly mission does not go well, though cultural differ differences do cause some friction. It is the, in the environment, the settings effect on the nuns that causes trouble. They find it more and more difficult to resist those desires that they have suppressed with the banality of religious servitude. These desires include love, sex, but even just nature and just, you know, appreciating the world around you. How terrible. Uh, this ultimately proves to be too much for uh, Sister Philippa, who requests a transfer, and for Sister Ruth, who doffs her off-white habit for a maroon dress and lipstick. Spurned by Dean, who she makes a beeline for, she turns her jealous rage on Sister Clota. Clota is able to cling to the cliffside bell that they ring every day via its pull rope, and Ruth falls to her death. This proves to be the final straw, and the film ends with the nuns retreating just as the rains start to fall, as Dean had earlier predicted. However, Dean is in a much different emotional place than he expected, and uh, does not want to see Sister Clota go. Dean and Clota resist their desire to tear each other's clothes off, parting with a meaningful hand-holding, with an exchange that goes, I cannot change a minute like the young general, but I will have my ghost to remind me, to which Mr. Dean says, you're leaving me with more than one. Rainfalls, credits, Black Narcissus. So Kayla, I think I got through all the big points. So what, what did, I guess, where do we want to start with Black Narcissus, this horny, horny movie? So it's funny because I did a lot of research prior to watching this specifically about how horny and erotic this movie is. And it's very funny because what passes for full stop, like, balls to the walls eroticism in the 1940s is literally nothing. <laughs> and I think that that's what makes this such an interesting film because aside from Sister Ruth, who is implied to be ill physically and mentally throughout the film, they're all, they all have a pretty good grasp on themselves. And I think that it's a testament to the strength of the writing and of their like stalwart performances that so much of this unsaid desire comes through. Although I will say that for me, this movie suffers from the issue that I think like almost all movies pre-1960 do and that it's about 15 to 20 minutes too long. Like there's always a section in old movies where I'm kind of like, Okay. <laughs> Where like so for the for instance this movie has basically a 40 minute setup of them just like arriving at the palace and like setting up shop. And it's like that kind of thing where I wonder if it's maybe an issue of like our reduced attention spans or if maybe there could have just been like some tightening up, but I don't know. I came into this movie with a little bit of preconceived notion thinking it would be more like a little bit more of a psychological thing throughout, but it's like 
pretty straightforward. The nuns show up, they immediately have their faith tested and then shit happens and they leave. So I'm curious, I guess, what your expectation was going into it and overall, like what your initial thoughts were. I had very little expectation. I did most of my research after the fact on this one. I think the only preconceived notions I really had were I, I've since looked up the exact tweets from Emily Yoshida, but before I started watching, I just remembered like I saw someone tweeting about this recently and how good it looked. And that was about all I remembered. And it did in fact look very good. It looks amazing. Yes. Other than that, it was pretty fresh without many expectations except you know, like a, you have a certain level of like quality, maybe some landmark classic filmmaking technically, uh, just because like it is a movie on Criterion. So besides like the Criterion expectations did not have much going into it. Just came to realize that this movie, like, it, I mean, it looks great. There's a reason one best cinematography and best art direction, uh, but how horny it is <laughs> and how effective it is like that. So I joke at the beginning, I made the joke at the beginning about the hand-holding, but like it really is a thing in both of these movies that like the, mo like the most we see the longing, whether it be prurient and sexual or like pure love and affection or whatever it is, it always culminates at the most in hand-holding in both of these movies. And I just... And I don't think either of us knew that going into it. It's just a very, in two very different movies in many ways, like that it comes to the same place in a way. Yeah. And I think that one thing that this movie does a really good job of is kind of setting up the austerity of these sisters, like obviously minus Sister Ruth, since she's kind of like the wing bat from the start. But with Sister Cloda in particular, like one, Deborah Kerr is, if you are unaware of this, Deborah Kerr is one of the greatest British film actresses of all time. She is widely considered to be one of the most graceful people to ever be on screen. She has given a million and one amazing performances. Another one that I definitely recommend is kind of like a, a repressed sexual woman entering into an unfamiliar environment is The Innocence, which is a horror movie from the 1960s that's really good. Like I was saying, they do such a good job of setting up the austerity of these nuns and Sister Claude in particular that it's legitimately shocking when she starts to open up to Mr. Dean or when she does at the very end of the movie take his hand. Like when you start to realize that she for all her bluster and seriousness has these very deep like longing feelings and that maybe she kind of realizes that they're not necessarily wrong but that she needs the order to kind of preserve her own life and the thing that i was thinking about throughout most of this movie is i mean you and i were both raised in a really religious environment your family is really different than mine and so i think maybe you maybe don't have as much of the experience as i do of like feeling like repressed or misunderstood by like the very small bubble that you live in and so i could in turn relate to sister cloda and sister ruth because like when you live in such a small world, part of you does kind of just want to go batshit crazy and be like, fuck you guys, I'm going to wear lipstick and I'm going to order this dress. And then part of you is like, this is the only thing I've ever known and it keeps me safe and happy and I should do that. And I think that it's really telling that the things that quote unquote tempt the sisters are not all necessarily love or sex or, you know, romantic things. Like Sister Philippa is distracted by 
the garden, like the nature scenes. And I think that when you grow up in such a, an insular community, and I guess they're not really growing up, but like when you are in such an insular community and you're only with those people all day, every day in the same like building all day, every day, it's really easy to stick to that faith and to keep yourself like on the chain, so to speak. And the minute that your environment changes or you're exposed to new people or new ideals, and you kind of get to learn more about the world, that's when it becomes really hard to, you know, justify keeping yourself locked away like that. And I think that this is a really good examination of when you allow yourself to see other cultures and to interact with new scenery. It broadens your horizons in a way that can't be denied, whether that's, you know, desire for sex or just for fucking, I don't know, looking out at the mountains and feeling guilty about that for some reason. It's crazy, but I I understand all those feelings because I have lived them. And for me, like, I feel like I didn't really become a real person until I left that very like small and insular community because I, I didn't know anything. I didn't, like, I didn't, meet like a non-white person until I was like in my late teens, which is insane to think about now. And these sisters are kind of like, they're a little bit on their racist shit. Like I'm not going to lie. There are a lot of really iffy comments about the locals, but in a way, like they are learning from these people and seeing this culture and it changes them and it changes their perception of the world and challenges their beliefs. And I think that is super interesting and also the experience that so many people have had. And I really like that the movie kind of leaves it off on this vague, like it's not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but now they will have to contend with this experience for the rest of their lives. And in some ways you can keep your faith and still be challenged or be interested in you know, what else is going on in the world. And I would like to think that Sister Cloda takes this experience with her and is like, this is how I can be the best version of myself as like a sister superior again someday. I mean, if anything, Dean is the one who's going to be the most shook by this. Well, I guess for the sister Ruth who died, she probably experienced the biggest change. Other than that, emotionally, uh, it was probably Dean because you get the feeling um, he is very much not the focus of this movie for being such an important and present character He's kind of like third, like kind of third build in a way. He's a sex object for much of it. I can, like I hate to reference Star Wars because that's not a thing I usually do, but it's a very Han Solo thing where like you can't stand the guy, but also you just want you want to like rip his head off, but also tear off his clothes. What well, doesn't help that he's always wearing these little button-up shirts with his chest all exposed and his thighs. Just he's so hot, everywhere. <laughs> Um, like it, 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 it is a testament to Clota's like faith and fortitude that a hand, like holding of hands is the furthest it goes. I was like, oh, he's like, he's going to be the one most shook by this because like, he doesn't have that bait. Like you, you get the feeling that he does not have that, like any strong base to fall back on that. He's been kind of like this playboy for a long time. And now suddenly he catches feelings and in many like i feel like we've seen many movies about that guy or that experience and so like i don't know it's kind of cool to get him as like the object or a not tertiary character but like a, a supporting character yeah like so often it's like the woman who is left behind at the end to kind of pick up the pieces of like whatever wild experience changed her and this man so it, it I like that he's kind of the one who has to like figure it out on his own <laughs> after. And I didn't dive into a ton of like their their work specifically. Uh, the writer director is Powell and Pressburger. 
uh, the archers, but apparently that is a mark of especially Powell's work. Uh, well, they work together, so uh, that they are more fascinated in the female characters. I guess I can't comment on it more than that, but that I um. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I wasn't going to go much further, except this was also based on a book by a woman, so I'm sure that helps. Um, but you were going to have a comment. Yeah, so the Criterion Channel actually has a couple of supplemental things around this movie that I also watched after finishing the movie yesterday. And one thing that I found super interesting was that Powell and Deborah Kerr were actually you know, in love and had... Uh, what they would call in the 40s an affair, but we could just say that they were dating. <laughs> um, the documentary, the mini documentary that I watched surrounding like the filming of this movie basically stated that like he was ready to marry her. And so I think that a lot of that kind of repressed, like I know that you're about to go to Hollywood and be this big thing. Like I think that it was probably very personal and resonant for him to end the movie in that way and to, you know, uh, put himself in Mr. Dean's shoes a little bit because you have this like ethereal, beautiful woman who you know is like going on to bigger and better things than you and you just have to kind of accept that and let her go. But Powell always was interested in putting interesting women on screen, which is rare for, you know, that time frame. And he and Pressburger were constantly looking for, you know, new ways to do that. Like for instance, the book that this is based on is more of a memoir. And they, while reading it, were like, I know the bones of a good movie are here and decided to focus it on the school and the hospital rather than the author's like personal experiences. And I think that that's a really strange and cool way to adapt somebody's book is to just be like, hmm, I'm sure your story is great, but what about these other ladies in the background here? What's going on there? And then another couple of things that I thought were really interesting were that um, I watched uh, a short documentary also about the color technique in this movie and it is filmed on technicolor which if you are not familiar with it is an older version of color film recording that processed color through several different layers so you would have one layer that was just the reds one layer that was just the greens and they would all be like assembled and put together into a single film print and there were really specific requirements there would always be a technicolor staff member on the shoot and they would kind of direct how you should be filming and what you should be doing, which, you know, works for some people, but not all of them. And Jack Cardiff, you know, was really resistant to this and ended up, you know, finding somebody at Technicolor who would kind of let him get away with breaking the rules. And it works really well in this film because you can, like, Technicolor is such an interesting medium and it looks so amazing and looking at this movie and looking at other movies that are made in Technicolor I know that it's like wildly expensive and impractical but god I wish we were still doing that because it just looks so different like it has such a distinct view and the way that Cardiff does things is he breaks the rules in the lighting like he's constantly choosing different ways to light scenes than the technicolor representative would want it and they were constantly calling him and being like you've ruined this shot and he's like just print it it's fine <laughs> like that kind of thing and when that kind of that level of care is going into you know every aspect of the movie from the writing to the cinematography to the music which was you know done with a newer collaborator that powell had not worked with very much because he wanted to kind of match the movie to the music in a way that theater does, I guess. Basically, you know, things were choreographed to the music, like the struggle between Sister Clota and Sister Ruth, where Clota almost dies and Ruth does die, was like literally blocked out 
to the beats of the music and it was all recorded in advance and played around set or in advance so that they would know like how to react and what was going on. And they specifically got someone who was also familiar with Indian music. If I remember it said that he'd made, uh, Brian Easdale had made three documentaries uh, in India when they found him at the recommendation of Carol Reed. That's what it was. It works really well. And even besides like, so like all these other technical aspects, they do, Harem turned convent or the school hospital is at the edge of this cliff. And it's like some very striking imagery. They ring a bell every morning that is at the edge of the edge of the cliff, which nuts. Uh, and the way obviously this is, filmed like what 1946 and so you know they don't have drones to get that shot catching the height the the drop that Ruth later takes so they use matte paintings throughout this entire movie to like because this, this is all shot in England and so they use these matte paintings as like the background or to show like to capture the depth uh, and the perspective and even when you can like your eye figures out their matte paintings they're just gorgeous it is so stunning it's yeah and i i love that and i think what's really awesome about that is that shot down the cliff first of all is is truly so realistic i did not realize at first that that one was a matte painting and it is it has the exact effect of like standing at the edge of a cliff and looking down like i legitimately felt my stomach drop the first time she stepped up to that rope i was like why is there not a fence a guardrail that bell anything like this is totally unnecessary (laughs) like this is not how we need to do this (laughs) surely but yeah one thing that i feel like we should bring up like the whole movie was shot on a soundstage and not in india and the way that the movie treats india is iffy (laughs) and very much uh i guess what is to be expected of a british film from the 1940s but there are There is certainly one, possibly two, characters who are meant to be Indian but are played by white people in brown face. There's three. I think there are three. I think the old general at the beginning, is he not in very bad brown face? I might have. It might have been so bad that I just like blocked it from my memory. Yeah. So the the old general, I'm pretty sure, the caretaker, and Kanchi, the local horny girl yes so and then possibly aya as well but we were debating all of these totally unnecessary yeah well we were so we were debating this beforehand because i was like is aya just a crazy english woman who lives up here or is she supposed to also be an indian character because her accent doesn't make any sense it's just an english lady accent kanchi is a little bit more like they try to make her quote-unquote act indian in that like she has like a dance sequence and she wears this big nose ring but yes it's very blatant and bad brown face (laughs) and and so the thing with kanchi is that she barely has any speaking lines she exists to make the horniness very textual in seducing the young general and like and she's you can see why it happened besides that it's uh shot on a soundstage in England. She's played by Gene Simmons, who had just been cast, like, who's basically an ingenue on the come up. She'd just gotten cast in Hamlet, for which she'd be getting a supporting actress nominee the next year. So they got a hot young ingenue to play the person who basically, basically just like, I fucks the young general and has to be convincing and seducing him, which she like does. She does a good job at doing that, but yeah. There's no reason it has to be Gene Simmons. 
Yeah, and but I do think that this is something like this was really common at this time in Hollywood, yeah. and that doesn't excuse it at all. And it's not right, but it is like an important part of film history to bring up that at this time it was really common to have white people playing literally any ethnicity. And there's a lot of yellow face going on during this time. There's a lot of like Native American shit happening in tons of movies um also i did just look it up and the old general is in fact played by esmond knight a white person and very yep. bad brown face so yeah it, his his was especially bad it's like his was really bad and obvious uh the the caretakers was like didn't seem like they did as much there like she could have just been a white person honestly who was there with dean mm -hmm. and then yeah uh conchi has like it's bad. And I think that this is like, is one way in which like, we have old Hollywood was so racist that they didn't even want to give throwaway nothing roles to people of color. And that is a super shame. And something that like, we are still trying to kind of rectify in the movie industry and like how it happens now though is that they'll take any ambiguous character and be like this is a white person <laughs> instead of casting anybody who isn't white and so i just think it's important to like bring that up and at least mention it because while the movie is really good and has a lot of stuff going for it that is kind of an unfortunate blight that i would not want to just like completely not address the young general is played by a man of indian descent so for i mean it's a bit like at least they got I don't know. Yeah, I looked up his entire filmography, by the way, and it's rough. It's literally like Arabian guy in this movie, Islamic villain in this movie, Indian guy in the. It's bad. <laughs> it's, yeah. Old Hollywood was a time. I mean, this rule sounds better than those other ones, at least. Yeah. That's this. Yes. This is a real, like, actual substantial role, though, where the young general is, like, a, a learned man who also, you know, makes a mistake and then learns from it in a way. Like, he runs away with Kanchi and. It's implied, I think, that they just have sex. Like, I don't think that they get married or anything. And he comes back to kind of, like, confess to Sister Cloda and apologize for leaving because she had broken convention by allowing him to study at the school when it's normally reserved just for, like, women and girls. And I think that she is also feeling some guilt over, you know, allowing herself to kind of stretch the rules a little bit when and then having it thrown back in her face. And he basically is like, I realized I made a horrible mistake and that I shouldn't have done it. And I just want to tell you everything that happened so that I can be done with it and return to my studies. And she's like, okay. <laughs> I'm leaving. His dad's also paying the bills. That's true. Yeah, she's like, fine, whatever. <laughs> like, that's fine, I guess. But I think that Kanchi is a really interesting figure in this because she kind of represents everything that the nuns wish that they could do and how they could act. And especially for Sister Ruth, I think that Kanchi's arrival is a real impetus to her, you know, kind of deciding to ditch her vows and go for it with Mr. Dean, even though Mr. Dean literally is like, I've never spoken to you before, which is rough. That's right. But fair and true. <laughs> He's actually really like pretty decent with uh sister ruth he's like hey let's uh we barely talked can we like i'll walk you back up to the uh the school let's get you let's get you back to bed, i see nice lipstick real good <laughs> but i do think that like i i don't know if there are many other directors of this time who would write a man being sympathetic of a character like sister ruth and i really appreciate that especially considering that 
Michael Powell is the kind of writer and director who is very interested in, you know, the taboo and the unsaid. He basically, after this, he goes on to direct The Red Shoes, which is another, you know, horror adjacent film, I guess. Well, yes, horror adjacent film uh, about a ballerina who has to choose between like her love of her art and actual love and romance. And I think that he is constantly looking for ways to explore that dynamic between men and women uh, trying to do their work or trying to overcome their circumstances. And then the film that he makes after The Red Shoes is the notorious Peeping Tom, which if you aren't aware of the history of this, is the film that basically buried and ruined his career because it is widely considered the first slasher film and is about a young man who stalks women and murders them, films it because he's trying to capture their expression of fear. And it's also very much about like working through the trauma. Well, not working through, I guess, but having uh, been raised in a traumatic situation and, you know, acting out on that impulse. And here it's not necessarily trauma, but it is, you know, this is my belief system and we are in this together trying to figure out how to navigate it. And we can't be together, but we want to be. And, you know, it just, I think that it's something that he explores in many different ways throughout his films, whether it's like murder or <laughs> eroticism or career stuff. Yeah, I had somehow missed that, even though I've heard like Peeping Tom is often cited, you know, as one of the first slashers, as I'm pretty sure there's a lot of, there's some POV, like killer POV camera work in there that is among like the OG, like we go back to Halloween and then Black Christmas. And then sometimes in these discussions, we'll wander back to Peeping Tom. But I think often people will just skip to Hitchcock. Well, yeah, and that's the thing is Powell and Hitchcock were close. It is rumored that Powell gave him the idea for the ending of, I believe it was Vertigo. I don't know. It was one of the Hitchcock movies. That's great. I probably should have looked that up first. But And they were, you know, close friends and confidants to each other for their careers. And so there are a lot of synergies between their films. And I think that Peeping Tom was, you know, it. it's hard to say how it was truly received because it was a smash like box office hit because everybody wanted to see it. It was kind of had that stress and effect of everybody not wanting to talk about it so badly that it was all anybody was talking about or watching, but it kicked off kind of this whole realm of British censorship in the like sixties and seventies where they, it was termed, I believe a video it's called, they're called video nasties, which are like just, you know, usually gruesome or, slightly more grotesque horror films that were then banned and became like this cult following thing where people were trying desperately to seek out like bootleg copies of them. And Peeping Tom is one of those movies that kind of had to come into its own. And I was reading that Powell laments this in his autobiography where he's like, I made a movie, nobody wanted to see it. It killed my career. And 20 years later, everybody's talking about how it's a masterpiece and it has this huge following. And it's just like, (sighs) We must all suffer for our art <laughs> in some ways. I wonder if John Carpenter is a fan of Peeping Tom. Oh, yeah. And, and that's the thing, too, is it's definitely one of those things where it's a Rosetta Stone for so many movies. And I think that, in a way, now that I've seen Black Narcissus, I can kind of see the influences throughout film history as well. And I think that Powell just is one of those very influential filmmakers that you kind of scroll through his IMDb and you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But you would never unless you're like a real deep into it film buff, you would never off the top of your head be like, ah, yes, the great filmmakers like Kubrick, Hitchcock and Powell. (laughs) Like, you know, like he's there, but he's like the bones of it, not the face of it. Doesn't sound like a very rewarding place to be, but 
hey, it's fun for fun for a rube like me to stumble upon. <laughs> yes. I think that pretty much wraps up our discussion of Black Narcissus, unless you have anything else that you wanted to add. Did I bring up uh, Ferrara's thighs? Did I mention those? I mentioned them briefly, but if you would like to yeah. also mention them, please go ahead. I mean, they're just always there, peeking out of those shorts, usually sweaty. Um, it's just... He's got good chest hair too. He's chest real hot. Hair, yeah, chest hair is not normally like my thing. It's actually embarrassing to me how attractive like 1940s men are to me. Like whatever's going on with his hair, which is just like sweaty. Probably it's just like that. But <laughs> it's like also like tousled up in a certain way. It's like got, wavy. It's like an OG bedhead look or something. That's, That's good. Yeah, it's really good. It's real hot. I get it. <laughs> Overall, Powell good and interesting. Pressburger good and interesting. Mr. Dean hot. Sister Clota, unshakable. <laughs> I will say, like, it's not like uh, going back to what we were discussing earlier. It's I don't feel an ounce of judgment in this movie, even with Ruth, who like go is so horny it drives her nuts. Like it it goes almost like it, it's at least horror adjacent in the end in her imagery when we when uh, Clota opens the door on her in that maroon dress and the look on her face and later when she emerges in the rain this like close up on her very pale and just like uh, her pale face that just really looks um deranged like yeah and yeah and that's I guess we didn't touch on Sister Ruth too much I think that she is the one who's portrayed as like physically ill throughout the movie and you know kind of looking at it i think it's just it's literally just stress like she's just stressed out because she's taken this vow and she doesn't know yeah she's not meant to be a nun and, and i get the feeling at first when they were in the very beginning of the movie when they reference her being sick in a way i thought for a moment because a lot of times women who were sick and sent to convents were pregnant um, and so I, she probably wasn't pregnant, but I get the feeling that like, this is definitely just a woman who was maybe a bit too wild and either her parents or whoever was responsible for her were like, you're going to go to the convent and you're going to learn about being a godly woman. And then you can get married when you leave. And, and, and the convent didn't know what to do with her either. They're like, maybe a change of scenery will help is basically the logic for sending her. Yeah. And I also do like though, that like, even though sister Clodagh clearly doesn't really want her there, she does take her role as sister superior really seriously. And she never uses it as an all powerful, like I'm in charge and this is what we're doing. Like she is constantly trying to look for ways to build her community and empower them. Like she wants to find something for sister Ruth to do. She wants, to make sure that sister philippa stay like she doesn't want her to leave you know she's like okay we messed up the garden because we were distracted by nature but now we know and now we can pray together and keep focus and you know we, we can hold each other accountable to this vow that we've taken and i just think that that's also a really interesting take to have on like a nun in charge when so much of like nuns in charge media is like super mean abusive woman like unreasonable prude like she is just a really real character who has her own memories her own struggles but is also trying to do the best in this role that everyone knows she's not really ready for and i don't think she's necessarily trying to prove that she is i think she just wants to do her best and you know like even at the end of the movie she's like it's what I need to not be in charge right now. And maybe someday I can be again, but right now is not the time and it'll be hard for me, but I can live with it. And I think that that just is what really seals the deal for this movie is that not only are the female characters given, you know, agency of sorts, they are complex. They are all interesting and they all have their own journeys and 
you go with them and you feel every step of it and none of it feels unearned or rushed or like so many movies from the 1940s, 1930s, 1940s have this ending where it's like, and then she either died or she became a perfect person and wife. Like it really just lets the narrative breathe and it lets her, you know, arrive at this place of imperfect resolve. Yeah, and man, that makes me just like thinking of some of the other movies I've seen too. It just makes me appreciate the ending even more. Like even going back further, the way it crescendos, I don't know. I just, it feels, I don't know if modern is the right world, but it feels very natural and it doesn't feel rushed in the way that they often do. Could extend this forever with Mm -hmm. also, I thought this, but it is interesting how religion is like really a set dressing for this. Like much as how, like much like how like the cultural clashes are like there, but not really a part of the movie that much. The religious part for being like the structural aspect, the actual religion, like like Christianity or, you know, Anglican Christianity isn't really that at issue. It's more the, just the structural nature of being a nun and suppressing everything else. It's not about being religious. This movie is not about the religious part of being religious, the doctrinal part of being religious. It's about like that structural suppressive nature. Well, and I think that, that this is another end also, but one thing that I, that that makes me think of is how throughout the film they contrast the sisters with the brotherhood of monks who is there before them and the idea is that for nuns like their aim is to keep busy and to keep working and to you know enrich the community and the monks job was basically to sit around and pray and think and that's just kind of a reflection of the societal roles that men and women are expected to play throughout all of history like women have to work hard and they need to stay busy so that they don't fall prey to their dumb thoughts and like their hysteria whereas men they should be thinking all the time because they're great and godly and et cetera, et cetera. It could go on, but the whole, like, it is just really striking that both of them failed, but the women are seen as more of a failure because like they weren't caught, like they were distracted, quote unquote, they weren't like working hard enough. Whereas like whatever the monks were doing was pure distraction at its finest. You're just sitting around and thinking and praying. Good movie. (laughs) Pretty pretty great movie. It's yeah, good movie. Unfortunate about the brown face. It's really unfortunate about the brown face. Which and I don't want to be like too dismissive of because like it is a legit like this movie has brown face and brown face is bad. Yes. Nobody Official knows. stance of LTRFI. <laughs> brown face is bad. That's not how I want to transition to a next <laughs> movie. Uh hand holding is good. And hand holding ex- hand holding is good. Um and people are hot. Yes. Speaking of, (laughs) the second half of our double feature this week is 2000's In the Mood for Love. In the Mood for Love is a 2000 Hong Kong film written, directed, and produced by Wong Kar Wai, who's also known for The Grandmaster, 2046, and Chung Kang Express. It stars Maggie Chung and Tony Wong. 
It debuted at the 2000 Cannes Film Festival, where it was nominated for the Palme d'Or, which is the top prize at Cannes, and it won Best Actor for Lung, and the Technical Grand Prize for Christopher Doyle, Li Ping Bing, and William Chang. It was Hong Kong's submission to the 2001 Academy Awards, but was not nominated. That was the year that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon won. And... I mean, it is a famous landmark film. Uh, it appears on many notable uh, best films of the 21st century or like best foreign films, like many of those lists. It's considered a great work by a great director. The film itself opens on Chow uh, Mawan and Su Li Zhen renting rooms in adjacent apartments on the same day in Hong Kong of 1962. The film then cycles through snippets of each's life and we find that each has an unseen spouse who is often away on business, a job at which they appear to be valued, but still isolated in those moments when they aren't interacting with their coworkers, and uh, a deep sense of loneliness, which can be connected to the last two pretty, pretty easily. Uh, we, see, we then see chance encounters and near misses between these two, especially at a local noodle shop. They eventually have dinner where they uh, reveal that they think their spouse is cheating on them and discover by sharing certain details that is likely that their spouses are cheating with each other. The two uh, then reenact how they think this might have happened. They start to spend more time together uh, strictly and explicitly platonically. We see them engage in shared interests like these martial arts serials that Chow starts to write and they, we see them anticipate each other's needs such as when Sue makes some sesame syrup for a sick chow. Chow rents another apartment so they can avoid suspicion when they hang out, still platonically, but despite their state of determination to not be like their unfaithful spouses, the two uh, eventually reveal that they have feelings for each other, mainly Chow, in terms of the revealing of those feelings. Chow takes a job in Singapore. He states that this is to go away since Sue won't leave her husband, but he does end up sending her a message asking her to join him if, if there were to be an extra ticket, hypothetically. It's kind of my context added. <laughs> we see him waiting in a hotel room and then leaving, and then we see Sue arriving too late, where she says, a single tear. The next year in 1963, we see Sue visit Chow's apartment while he is at work, his apartment in Singapore. She calls him, but when he picks up, she doesn't say anything. Later, he returns to his apartment and finds a cigarette with lipstick on it, which is how he realizes that she was there. <laughs> then we jump to three years later, 1966. Sue returns to her old apartment. Uh, the landlady is moving out and Sue rents the apartment from her. She learns that the neighbors next door had moved staring longingly out the window at the other apartment. And we've seen her stare out this uh, window longingly many times. Later, Chow returns to his old apartment next door. The landlord is gone, but the new owner says a woman and her son have rented the, apart the apartment next door. Chow never realizes that this woman is Sue and he leaves. Chow tells, later tells a friend from work, uh, a work friend in Singapore about an old custom where someone would go up into like on a mountain or on a hill, carve a hole in a tree and whisper a secret into it that you, a secret that you want to keep secret, whispers a secret into it. And then you cover it with mud. Later, we see him at an old monastery in Cambodia, still in 1966. He sees a hole in the wall of this like abandoned monastery or decrepit. It's like a ruin that people visit, it seems like. He sees a hole and he, we see him whisper into it for a long time. After a few cuts, after he leaves, we see that the hole has been filled in with mud. Then a black screen appears and text on the screen says, 
He remembers those vanished years. As though looking through a dusty pane, the past is something he could see but not touch. And everything he sees is blurred and indistinct. Yeah. End credits. Man. Devastating. (laughs) So I don't even know where to start. First of all, this is totally accidental. But it is this month, the 20-year anniversary of the premiere of In the Mood for Love at Cannes Film Festival. I'm just really good at accidentally doing stuff like that. Man. So this is a movie that has been on my radar for a really long time to watch. And I think for a while I had it kind of confused with Ang Lee's lust caution and thought it was more of like a thriller than just a a pure like romance drama. And so going into it, I was expecting a little bit more of like intrigue, I guess. But what I got was much better than what I was anticipating. And it's just talking about like movies that are shot beautifully and have incredible color. I actually at one point looked up to see if this movie had also somehow been filmed in Technicolor just because of the way that the reds and the greens pop in this, but no, it's just good cinematography. This is definitely a movie that has a lot of hype surrounding it. And I was definitely worried that going into it, I wouldn't be as moved by it as everyone else on planet earth seems to be just because of that reputation that it has. But this is definitely a movie that is transfixing. Like there were so many times where I couldn't even like conceive of taking my eyes off the screen. It is incredibly poetic. It, has this constantly shifting and evolving timeline. It's very vignette which is another thing that I liked a lot because you're never quite sure like how many days have passed, like what is going on. It's also really hard to get a sense of like the layout of the apartments or how the apartment building even works. Like it, the way that it's filmed almost makes mm. it seem as if the two apartments are like this, like that they're the same. Like it's just like one big communal area, even though I know that it's not. And that kind of confusion, I think, lends to the atmosphere of like, their lives are tangling together over time. And like, you're watching this deep loneliness and this deep connection forming at the same time. I think I, so like, obviously I have a similar relationship. Well, maybe not obviously, but I have a similar relationship with this movie where it's obviously, it's very hyped. I know it's a romance. It's called In the Mood for Love. But I was very quickly surprised by the fact that it is not, I guess it's like, it's not necessarily traditional romance. And even like the plots that it would mirror, it is is portrayed and carries out in a much different way. I'm sure we will get into the actual like camera work and how these, each like all the events are shown to us. But it's for the longest time, there's not much romance to it. Like even when we see those, those early scenes where we see them crossing paths or near misencounters, those do not have, at least in my reading of the movie, this like the spark that you might expect, this moment where they lock eyes. And you're just like, whoa, man, that is some sexual tension coming up. It's for the longest time. It's just about how these people are lonely. And even when they start to connect and stick together, and even though they do admit feelings for each other in the end, for the longest time, it's just these two people who are lonely who are hurting, who are, are, that are just finding solace in each other because they're kind of all each other has. It's, it's very organic. And I think that that's what I like about it is that like love in real life is not always like an instant spark or an instant connection. It, it takes, and like that definitely happens for people, but like the best relationships in my opinion that you can have, whether it's love or friendship are relationships that you cultivate and that you tend to, and where you find common ground and you 
work to make that connection rather than having it just appear for you instantaneously. And I think that this movie does a really good job of portraying what that looks like and how it feels. I mean, in one of the, in maybe possibly the most famous quote, I'm sure one of them. And, and in one of the few moments where this movie is explicit, Chow says to Sue, uh, to Sue, feelings can creep up just like that. I thought I was in control. Yeah. And it's devastating. Well, and it's one of those things too, where um, the huge crux of this movie is that they're hurt by their spouses cheating on them. And that hurt blossoms into understanding. And I think that that is, a really generous way for them to approach it. And I think that an interesting thing that they do is they constantly are like acting out how they would confront their spouse or what their spouse would say if in a given scenario. And it's kind of sick in a way, like, because like, that's just horrible to like think about doing or, you know, conceptualizing, but it's also like really cathartic in a way to have somebody that you feel so closely connected with that you can share that like deepest part of like, it's shameful. Like nobody wants to be cheated on and nobody wants to, especially in like the 1960s in Hong Kong or in any culture admit that like their marriage isn't perfect or that, you know, they're not a perfect couple. I mean, both, and we have moments where both of them are told about their partners, different things, but to the same extent, like Chow was told how beautiful his wife is and how lucky he is. Su Li Zhen is told, or Mrs. Chan is, we don't get as fawning stuff about her husband, but like the landladies tell her, like, make sure he doesn't travel as much, you know, it's good that you're living your life, but you know, keep your husband at home. Like, keep them close and yeah the the implication is very much that like it's her responsibility to keep her own desire under control as well as his and the other thing going into this movie is i was like oh these are going to be really interesting compare and contrast because clearly black narcissus about nuns is a movie about like repressed desire and a movie called in the mood for love will surely be about giving into that desire and what i discovered through watching them is that they're actually quite similar in like this is the way that society is this is how we live our lives and these are the choices we have made and we must now stick to them because we did that like those are the choices <laughs> you know and 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 maybe there were brief moments where you tried to give in or thought you were going to give in but like depending on how that moment plays out it might just be that it might just be a moment and it might stick with both of you for the rest of your lives but and it's so heartbreaking too because throughout the whole movie like you can see that Mrs. Chan wants to do this. And I think that it's a different experience for her because for Chow, I, I would assume, given the comments made about Mrs. Mr. Chan, that it's almost expected that husbands will cheat on their wives in a way because like, oh, he travels all the time. Oh, he's always bringing her back gifts. Like it's accepted because he's a man and that's like what men do. But for her, it would be a, like a devastating social blow for her to be like, I am leaving my husband. I will now be with this different man. And the whole movie, you, I at least, I wanted her to do it. Like I wanted her so badly to just like let herself be happy. But at the same time, I understood like the pressure of being like, this is my role and I have to stick to it even if it's not necessarily right because like the support system that she would lose, like by deciding not to go with Chow, she loses one person. And while that one loss is incredibly devastating, it's not her entire social network and familial support, you know? And it's just, yeah. Well, and we even get one final scene at the end of the movie. And there's, once again, like most of the movie, it is not explicit, even how like she feels or how she should feel. But like we, 
it like it shows us that she is indeed the woman with a child, a son, in that other apartment. And there's no comment made about the husband or whatever, but like that's just the we she has a son now and it's been three years. She would not have that son if she had gone with Chow. It does not say like I don't think the movie hints at all whether that is a positive or a negative. I think it's just I think it's another way where it's kind of hints at like that was a beautiful part of life that could have gone another way and it didn't. And it's not necessarily like, it's not tragic that it didn't, but it is like, it just didn't. And like, there's those feelings will linger with them in different ways, but life goes on. It really reminds me honestly of another movie that we discussed recently, which was um, portrait of a lady on fire, because the whole conceit of the movie is that this was a deeply important thing, but it had its time and it had to pass. And it's very tied to the story of Persephone and Orpheus, where Orpheus makes the quote unquote poet's choice to look back and see this image of her knowing that that means that he will not get to keep her with him. And I think that for Mrs. Chan, like that's the same choice that she makes where she knows, like she got to experience this really beautiful, real fulfilling love and it mattered and it was something that she will carry with her the rest of her life, but she has a duty and, you know, a life that she leads in a, a way that she wants to continue her life. And she does that. And I think that this, for me, at least the sun is a positive note because it's like what she was, was lonely. And what she wanted was a companion. And her husband clearly is not willing or can't give that to her, but he did give her the thing that she needed, which was, you know, uh, somebody to spend time with and be with her. And I think that, her journey and Chow's journey are very different in that for Chow, I think he will always look back on this as like, at least based on him, like sharing this deep secret, like maybe he's more at peace with it than I, than I realized. But to me, it seems like she is at peace and she has moved on with her life. Whereas he, you know, considers this the thing that he will always be thinking about instead of like moving on from. And I, and I have two points on that. One is, which is commenting on and one, which is kind of transitioning a bit. But the one um, kind of joining that is commenting on the end once again, taking a step backward from where I was. We've seen this scene in like Hollywood movies and it plays out much more dramatically where he asks her to go with him. She races to the hotel room, but it's a near miss. And like that is like standalone, a tragic moment. But I think part of what's key with her in the next next year going to Singapore and going to his apartment and like just staying where he has been, where like his essences or whatever for, it seems like twice maybe she goes. She makes a choice there. The choice was kind of taken from her before because she didn't get there in time, but she has the opportunity to go to him again and she chooses not to. I just find that very fascinating. And I guess the transition is, this is where we're not going to get into it too much, but this movie is part of a trilogy that's about to turn into a tetralogy of films from Wong Kar Wai that while not necessarily direct sequels are more than spiritual sequels. So let me switch tabs here. So in his 1990 movie, Days of Being Wild, Suli Zhen is a character in that movie and she is played by Maggie Chung. Um, and that movie is about, I, I guess without, I have not seen it and without really getting spoilers that's kind of like a failed relationship then and then in the mood for love is the next movie in this in 2000 in which obviously it's this movie it's shuli zen's and um chow's 
would be relationship emotional affair the next <laughs> right emotional affair that's good and then so the next movie in this is the 2004 film 2046 which is actually one of maggie chung's last credits um, she basically stopped acting um in like this year i took this quote from wikipedia it is about uh it, it is tony leung playing Chow as the main character. And it follows in the aftermath of his unconsummated affair with Shuli Zhen. And we see his relationships with other women following that in that movie in Singapore. And in that movie, I guess, like for some context, Mary Chung plays Mrs. Chan only in flashbacks, but there is apparently a modern version of her played by Gong Li and won't even get to that character. I, I I have also not seen this movie. And then The Blossoms, which starts for filming this year, like there were days ago were the first reports of that when that filming will be starting, is going to be a fourth film in this tetralogy. And we have no idea, at least I have no idea, I've not seen how that then films into the story. So I guess I did a little deep dive there, but like, so I don't know. I think this movie is beautiful staying on its own, but also we do get kind of continuations Sorry, I've lost the thread of where this came from. I think you were talking about Chow's life after this. Am I? Yes, okay. which is fine. You're, you're good. Like, right. So like, <laughs> there is context, is basically what you're right. saying. Right. Yeah. 2046 kind of gets into that, but like, I don't know. It's very fascinating. Like, Wong Kar Wai has not made that many movies, and like mm-hmm. a third of them are this tetralogy of these two characters. It reminds me of like Hong Kong version of like the Before trilogy, almost. Totally. So it's like just vignettes in a life of a relationship or the effects of said relationship. And I don't know, when I think about like, it's hard almost to talk about this movie because so much has already been said about it and written about it. And I don't know, overall, I just think it's this beautiful piece of poetry. And like, it's hard, like, this is probably such like a rube opinion, but I'm almost like, I I'm almost not interested in what else happens surrounding this narrative because like for me, this is a singular emotionally satisfying experience. Like I'm sure I would watch all of these movies and like them and feel that, but like there's just something very special about this. It reminds me kind of of the first time that I ever saw like Amelie because it has that same like, like melancholy whimsy, I guess is like how it it feels like it, it has a whimsy to it, but it's like sad in a way. And that movie has a happy ending, whereas this one has a more like um, neutral ending, but I don't know. It's just, it's, it's poetry. I don't know. It's beautiful. (laughs) Truly the way this movie is made is like, I mean, it's abstract in a sense. Like I stole, I I was trying to come up with words for it. And one I found is um, IndieWire called the, uh, like, so like, I just was trying to figure out how to describe the camera work. And it's, it's tough because like, it's like abstract and it's about these like fleeting moments, but also the lingering impact with them. Um, It feels almost like spying on them at some points. Like it's literally like the, POVs are sometimes like behind like there's a moment when he admits her love that we're like behind a barred window or something and gazing on them and it's like spying on them it's really emotional moment Mm -hmm. and like IndieWire called the uh, camera patient but also ruptured which like is kind of right like we're jumping from moment to moment in these disconnected moments but also like it doesn't feel rushed it feels like it does feel like we're lingering even as these moments just like well in a way goodbye. that makes me think that it's almost like how it would be pers- like we are the voyeurs of this relationship like we are the gossipy society around them like watching this unfold and making inferences about what it is that they're doing so i, I mean like and obviously like the- when we're watching it we have like we want them to engage 
engage in this or whatnot. But I think the camera is kind of reflecting that like you are part of this community. This community is watching you and, you know, has a friendly but specific interest in your life and in your relationships. And, you know, that can turn against you at any moment. And you can be like gossip fodder. And we're, we're experiencing this moment linear, linearly because like that's how we as human beings experience time, at least, you know, from my understanding of other people. Um, this almost like that kind of sparked a thought in me. Like it almost feels like memory the way, especially the early on in this movie where it's just, it's just these moments. We have no idea like the timing in between them. We have... I guess like the timestamps on those uh, in those final 20 minutes, like give us an idea that this is over the course of like a few months to a year, but Mm -hmm. time is kind of immaterial to it. And I think that it also is interesting how I think that the timeline kind of solidifies as they get closer because the beginning of the movie is very choppy. And I think that it's kind of that the reflection of like that isolation and loneliness, like you're like when you're depressed or, you know, lonely like you are like your life is vignette like that like you just it's like okay like this happened I guess and I kind of remember it and like you know and then as you start to have a more distinct relationship or maybe not even a relationship but as you are more involved in the world around you as opposed to being isolated it solidifies into like okay this is this entire week and now I have like a full memory of these events happening instead of just like remembering bits and pieces of it and I mean I I don't know that I have much to comment on it but like a part of the the uh what was it uh I can't remember, patient but ruptured uh, timing is also like, it is so vignette but then regularly throughout the movie, we get these slow motion sequences that aren't like of much, but it is like one of, one of them basically experiencing some deep loneliness, often when surrounded by people, but like obviously lonely. We see Mrs. Chan at like a dinner party with her landlady and they're all chatting and eating and she is just like, She's not seated at the table. She wanders to the window, drinking her whatever beverage it is, like staring longingly out the window. I haven't finished my thought. These throughout, we get these slow motion scenes that are just of them being in the world by themselves, whether it be walking to the noodle shop, staring out the window, surrounded by coworkers, but like disengaged, set to this Yumeji's uh, theme, it's called. It's actually from another movie. And just, it is part of the, aching beauty of this movie and the like fractured time of it where it moves so quickly and then slows down and 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 yet never feels inconsistent this this movie oh god i I like it the more i talk about it and it's stunning yeah it's i really like i don't know i i don't really have a lot else to talk about it because i i truly feel like it is a movie that should be experienced and it is just so beautiful to watch and to experience all of these feelings and it I don't it rightfully deserves like this place in the upper echelon of film and I'm really glad to have finally watched it I've talked about many times about how I wait too long to watch movies because I'm like oh it's got to be right and like this isn't like despite what we've talked about and how much this movie is about like lonely and love unconsummated and as we've said several times, like the most the love is consummated is in the holding of a hand and just the emotion that you feel in the holding of that hand when it takes place in both these movies. But it's not, it's not a hard sit either. No, it's cathartic. It, it, it feels, it feels like life. Like the, I, like, I think in a way, like we all have 
a person somewhere that were like, hmm, if if I was in a different timeline, maybe my life would be with this person. And I think that can be sad, but is an almost universal experience. And it's something that we understand, like builds who we are as a person. And again, like we make the choices that we make and we choose who we want to be with and who to stay with and where to put that effort in. And I think that that is what makes this movie easy to sit there and easy to watch. It's, it's heartbreaking, but in a way that is eventually understandable and again, cathartic. <laughs> right. You feel truly bitter. Like it's bittersweet at the worst, but it is like catharsis is good. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we do that. <laughs> Yes, I know. And it's like, and that's like, again, a thing where in so many movies that could be played off as like creepy or stalkery, but those two characters know each other so well that they know that is what had to happen and that it's okay that it happened and it shouldn't be any other way. Like they shouldn't meet up actually in Singapore and they, it's probably for the best that they miss each other in the hallway of their old apartment. Because once you've made those choices, you have to commit to those choices and you have to move past them to live your life. If you're constantly living, you know, in the shadow of what could have been, you can't have a fulfilling life. And I think that that's perhaps the conclusion that they both come to, whether it's, you know, moving on and having a son or telling your secret to the monastery and leaving it there. And, you know, sometimes we break into that person's apartment and just like sit in their aura for a while and (laughs) reminisce about what could have been, but we don't take those decisions. Yeah. So that's that, I guess. Um, A really good, like, uh, proud of myself really for like really honestly accidentally throwing that together. Like that sounds really narcissistic, but like it was very much a fluke. I was just like, these movies are about horniness, I guess. So they can go together and it was a really like good double feature. So and you'll always have that moment where you held hands. <laughs> Terrible. Um, yeah. So that has been this week's episode on Black Narcissus and In the Mood for Love. I think we both highly recommend watching either of these movies. They're very different, but very similar in a lot of ways. Turns out it's horniness unrequited. Unfulfilled. <laughs> um, in June, we will once again obviously be doing a recently watched episode. We are looking to have some guests on this month to talk about some stuff. More on that to come. They will be announced. Uh, probably on the episode (laughs) or maybe slightly before the episode is recorded. I don't know. Um, Our next Criterion double feature will definitely have a guest and that guest will be our friend and producer Landon DeFever. And we will be covering Fat Girl directed by Catherine Berla and The Piano Teacher directed by Michael Haneke. I hope I pronounced both of those right. Oh my God. I forgot that was a Haneke movie. Okay. Just gotta steal myself. <laughs> That's I. I'm looking at the descriptions of these earlier. I believe these are both gonna be some suffering movies. Which Love considering, yeah, considering that the last movie Landon made us watch was Happiness by Todd Salons. Not surprised. Thanks, Landon. Hey, Landon. Landon, you okay, <laughs> buddy? It's gonna be. It's gonna be great though. So you can tune in yes. next month for those things. 
Um, in the meantime, everybody continue to stay healthy and safe. Remember that even if stay at home restrictions are lifted in your state, that does not mean that COVID-19 is over. So continue to be smart about how you're doing things. Um, subscribe, rate and review, subscribe, rate and review. Um, you can follow us on social media, uh, on Twitter and Instagram at LTRFI pod. You can email us if you are interested in being a guest, if you have a double feature, you would like to cover on the criterion channel. If you just want to chat, it's uh, ltrfipod at gmail.com. And last but not least, you can, if you feel so inspired, contribute to us financially for as low as $1 and up to as many dollars as you feel like on patreon.com slash ltrfipod. We have a couple of different reward tiers. Um, $1 is we thank you on thingy. Uh, if you donate $10 per month, you get to choose a movie for us. And that does not have to be a Criterion Collection movie. You can just choose a movie and we will do it because you gave us money. Um, the money that we've received from Patreon thus far, we use to purchase the Criterion Channel subscription that we are basing this year's project on. Um, we are currently using the monthly stuff. I get, well, it's, it's just sitting there, but in theory, it's paying for like our Zoom account that we now have to have due to global quarantine and all this other stuff. So we really appreciate everybody that has contributed to that and if you would like to sign up you are more than welcome and we've been um, discussing adding more stuff i think i say this every time but at some point we will yeah we we have two episodes a month now which is like good i think we've so. discussed adding like if at the five dollar tier you get to pick some you get to force us to do something for the recently launched yeah, we'll get there you think about it well we'll discuss with the with the and team of course only only donate money if you can afford it or like you know yeah times are tough right, right now, now. So. It's kind of weird asking, like, saying, hey, why don't you toss a few dollars our way during this time of global pandemic? Yeah. So no worries if you can't. We're cool. Make sure to support and be nice to the essential workers in your life, whether that's healthcare professionals or grocery store employees or coffee shop people. Let's just all try to stay kind and good to each other during this time. And we will see you guys next month. Touching hands, reaching out. It just got in my head. Touching me. Well, because like. Touching you, sweet Caroline. Ba, ba, ba. Good times never seem so good. So good, so good, so good. Okay, all right. I just had to get that out of the way. That's well, good. thank you, because I was going to do it at some point. Uh, <laughs> you ha you'll have your turn. Don't worry. We can just edit this into the end of the episode <laughs> as the karaoke stylings of LTRFI.